Okay, so I believe we are online live here, and um, I'm Shani Ramirez, and I'm going to be doing a study on Philippians tonight. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. It's my first time speaking to people through video, so this is going to be uh, new for all of us. But um, thank you for joining us. And I just want to start this evening by saying welcome to Victorious Mindset. And before I go any further, I have to thank some people, because even though I'm the one that you see behind the camera, there are other people here that um, have helped behind the scenes, setting up audio, video, PowerPoint, which is going to be very helpful for us. And even before today, setting up the schedule, the other teachers that I teach with, thank you, Lord. And thank you for so many people who are praying. Thank you for praying for this study. Um, also, in case you didn't know, we have someone who is willing to help us with Zoom groups. So if you want to connect with people after the teaching time and you don't already have friends that you're connected with and you'd like to be a part of a Zoom group, all you have to do is email Elizabeth and her email should actually be right in the comment section of your screen right now so you can see where that is and if you're interested and want to be involved then just send her an email so thank you so much um, I hope that this study is not just a way for us to absorb new information we, we really want it to be a time where God speaks to us and we can wrestle with him and talk it over with other people and um, and pray for each other during this time. So that's our goal. Um, okay, before we get started, there's just a couple of things that I wanted to share with you about this study. One is, why Philippians? How did I choose Philippians? And this started uh, because originally, I was gonna do a Philippians and Colossians study for nine weeks. But then when we were looking at the schedule, I found out that it was only going to be a seven-week period that we had. And I knew that that was not enough time to do both, so I had to choose one. But I'm so excited. Just yesterday when I was thinking about these seven weeks, I realized that seven weeks is a very special period of time. Maybe if you did the winter study with Mickey, you learned, as I did, about some special numbers in the Bible and even some special weeks, and seven weeks is one of them. I don't know if you realize that this past Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, was also something called First Fruits, and that is a special day when um, the Israelites celebrated the first fruits that they got from the harvest, and they presented that to the Lord. And that's also the day that Jesus rose and became our first fruits that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 and how because he rose from the dead and he's the first fruit, we also can follow him in going to have life after death. And that day of first fruits, the Lord tells us to count seven weeks from that day and then they would have their next festival, which just happens to be when the Holy Spirit showed up at Pentecost. So our seven weeks is going to be precisely in the same timeline of the seven weeks between Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost. And so I'm just saying, at the end of this, 
maybe we're going to be seeing some tongues of fire coming on all of us. And um, by the way, this is a good time for me to mention to you that at the very end, the last week, my goal is to get done with the teaching time and for our last Wednesday night to be a night of testimony. So if God does something in you throughout these next six weeks, please let me know. And maybe you can be one of those tongues of fire testifying on the last night about what he has done. So I'm excited about that. Back to how did I choose Philippians? Well, the week I was deciding, should it be Philippians or Colossians, happened to be the same week that I heard Pastor Tim give the message on Mark 2. This wasn't in April when he returned. It was back at the very end of February, beginning of March. And if you remember, he preached from Mark chapter 2 on the paralytic whose friends brought him and had to cut a hole in the roof and bring him down to see Jesus, if you guys remember that. And I remember that he said that he wanted our church to be like that, caring about the paralytic on the mat who needed help. And so with that on my mind, I thought, how am I going to decide between these books? And I realized that I had never looked them up on the Bible Project, which is a wonderful resource that I use often. It has a video that summarizes every single book of the Bible. If you're interested in using it, you find it at thebibleproject.com. And so I decided, well, I haven't looked up either of these books on there, so I think I'll, I'll look at them. When I clicked on Philippians, you'll never guess, the picture that came up was a man lying on a mat, looking like he had been beaten, and he was reaching out for help. And I thought, well, there it is. That's the picture of what we want our church to be like, and that's how I chose Philippians. Um, so anyway, the second thing I wanted to tell you tonight is that it is no accident that we are doing this study. I really believe that God has chosen it for us, and not only for me, but for you, whether you're at home right now watching this live, whether you're watching this on video sometime later. He has chosen this time because He wants to speak to us. And so I want you to know that it's no accident. And finally, I also feel like I wanted to share with you my word for the year. I don't know if you do this, but I have just for the past several years asked God for a word for the year, and uh, I've been praying that word for you, which is why um, I want you to know what it is. It came from Matthew 13. One of the leaders here shared that with us back um, near the end of last year. And it, it's when Jesus is sharing the parable, um, and his disciples say, why do you speak to us in parables? They're so hard to understand. And he says, well, it's fulfilling a prophecy, and it's actually from Isaiah. And it says that the people would be seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding, or else they would turn and be healed. And I just couldn't quit thinking about that. And the Lord gave me the word healing for this year. And my prayer has been that we would reverse this prophecy and that we would be a people who are seeing and perceiving, who are hearing 
and understanding and who will turn and be healed. So why don't I just pray for that right now? Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the people you have brought who are excited to learn from your word today, starting with me. Lord, thank you for your spirit. And I pray that your word of healing would come forth today. I pray that we would be a people who are not only seeing the word, but we are perceiving. That we would not only hear it, but we would understand what we hear. And that, yes, Lord, whatever you tell us, we would receive it. We would turn and be healed. I know you have so much that you want to do in us. So we receive it. And I pray, Lord, that every word that goes forth today from your word would accomplish its purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I believe we are ready to get into the book of Philippians. So, first of all, where do we find this in the Bible? We have the Bible, which hopefully you know about, is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And obviously we're going to be in the New Testament this time. The New Testament starts with the Gospels and Acts, and then it has a group of letters followed by a very special book called Revelation, which if you have not read it, please read it, especially during these times right now. But we'll be focusing on the section of letters, and the letters are grouped by who wrote them, Paul being the first group, and then we have people like Peter and James and John. And Paul's letters are divided into two groups. The first group is letters that are uh, written to groups of people or churches and letters that are written to individuals like Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And so in the groups, in each group, they're actually ordered according to length. Isn't that interesting? I always thought maybe it was importance or chronology or topic, but it's simply how long it is. So Philippians happens to be the sixth in um, Paul's 13 letters. After Romans, then you have the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. So hopefully you have found it. You can turn in your Bible, and we're going to talk a little bit about what Philippians is all about. Philippians is different than Paul's other letters in that he's not writing to correct false doctrines or to rebuke his audience for bad attitudes or behaviors. He's mostly writing to thank them for their love and support, and also to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. Although the letter is widely known for its emphasis on joy, maybe you've heard that before, and Paul does say the word joy or rejoice 11 times in just four chapters. But when I think of Philippians, the word that comes to mind for me is perspective. Perspective. Because Paul relates his divine perspective on life in such a way that it brings peace and joy and hope and confidence regardless of the current circumstances. He has a way of stepping back and seeing things from an eternal perspective. And that enables us, the reader, to do the same. We're reminded 
that we already have the victory in Christ. And so every situation is a win-win. I like that, that attitude that he has, seeing things as a win-win. And that's why I titled this study, Victorious Mindset. We also see that Paul learned this victorious mindset from Jesus. I can't read this letter without finishing with a smile on my face, and I believe that it will be the same for you because it fills me with faith and courage and, yes, joy because it raises me up. It helps me see life from a glorious vantage point where God is the unshakable, benevolent king that he is, and the battle is won. I have no doubt it will do the same for you. Bring us perspective on life during a time that we need perspective more than ever, I believe. In a world that can be very negative, can beat us down, this has been a pick-me-up. It has been a source of positive feedback. And so, my friend, if you need something positive, you have come to the right place. Now, the first verse of Philippians. Paul, and we have to stop right there. <laughs> Paul is the first word, and it's because he's the author. It was normal um, for letters of this time to begin with the author. So now in our day, put our name at the end when we sign the letter, but they started with it, which for me seems very helpful. So you know who's writing to you right from the beginning. And that brings the question, was he really the author? Or did he dictate it? And yes, he is the author, but it's likely that he dictated it and didn't write it out in his own handwriting. It's likely that he had a scribe because that was very common during that time, especially for people who were well-educated. And we know that Paul was well-educated. We also know that he did not physically write some of his letters because some of them say so. And um, it, he may have dictated all of them. For example, in Romans, he finishes Romans by saying, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. So right there we can see that there was somebody else who actually wrote it, but Paul was the author. Um, he also finished some of them with a greeting in his own handwriting. For example, the, letter to first, the first letter to the Corinthians, also to Colossians and, and Philemon, closes by Paul saying, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And Paul seemed to have a sign of authenticity in his letters, which is interesting. The second letter to the Thessalonians closes with the remark from Paul that emphasizes his own particular mark. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is the mark in every letter of mine. It is the way that I write. So according to this statement, Paul would close each of his letter, letters with his own type of signature. And it was his unique way of verifying the authenticity of his letters. There are some that think Paul uh, had a reason for using a scribe, and that was possibly because of a physical limitation. You may have heard sometimes they talk about him possibly having eyesight problems, and he's known for what he wrote to the church in Galatia. 
where he said, see what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand. The large letters would be consistent with the vision problem. Or maybe he just had a lack of practice with ink on papyrus. I read that writing with ink on papyrus was actually very difficult. And so that's why most people who were educated and wrote a lot didn't bother with learning how to do it. They just let a scribe do it. Whatever the case, we can feel confident that Paul is the author. He most likely dictated it to a scribe who wrote, and then Paul would add a final greeting in his own hand. So, now that we know that he is the author and probably used a scribe, who is Paul? What do we know about him? Paul was born in Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. And a little bit later, we're going to look at a map and find out um, where that is. But he was born into a family which apparently maintained their Jewish faith and their Jewish way of life despite their Gentile environment. Tarsus was a Gentile city. So Rome, I mean, I was thinking about Rome because it's part of Rome. Paul was thoroughly Jewish as well as a citizen of no ordinary city, as he refers to it in Acts, and he possessed Roman citizenship. Though he left Tarsus for Jerusalem where he was brought up, he maintained contacts there and was familiar with the ways and practices of the Gentile people. In Jerusalem, he received his formal education in Judaism under the famous teacher Gamaliel. So, when God called Paul to be his primary spokesman for Christianity in a Gentile context, his background and his connections to the pagan city of Tarsus, as well as his Jewish training, all came into play. He undoubtedly understood the Gentile thinking and was able to use his skills that he had learned during all those hours with his Jewish mentor before he became a Christian. I love the way one commentator said, God wastes nothing. He uses it all for his purposes. Remember, God refers to Paul as his chosen instrument indicating that he had uniquely qualified him for his apostolic role of preaching to Jews and to Gentiles. And I want you to think about if he put all those things into play for Paul to be just the right person for his purpose, he has done the same for you. You are uniquely qualified for your purpose. Every single person has a purpose here, and God has qualified you. The family you were born into, the time period you were born into, the skills, talents, gifts that you have, even the difficult things you've gone through, everything God uses for His specific purpose for your life. And if you haven't found that purpose, I would encourage you to ask Him what that is. Um, and later, Later at the end, when we have time for a group discussion, I would like that to be one of the things you guys talk about. Share with each other what you think you know God's um, purposes for your life, or if you don't know, pray for each other about how to find it. And then thank Him for the good plans He has for your life. All right, so let's move on and see where we first find Paul mentioned in the Bible. 
The first time we hear of him is in Acts chapter 7, and it's the earliest mention of, Paul, of Saul. That's what he's called at the beginning. And we see him as a persecutor. Um, this is when he is consenting to the stoning of Stephen. Then, just a chapter later, we find the conversion of Saul in Acts chapter 9. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that. We read about the intent on his life, which is the first of many, and then he is sent back to Tarsus. So he's consenting to the stoning of Stephen. Then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and converts. And then he, they send him back to Tarsus because he's causing all kinds of havoc and people in Jerusalem want to kill him. And you know what it says? Then there was peace. The church experienced peace for a time once they sent him back to Tarsus. I find that so funny. Um, and then the next time we see him is in Acts 11. But what you may not realize is that 17 years have passed since his conversion. You can read about that in Galatians chapter 1. I think I put the, yeah, I put the, the, uh, the reference up there for you. So he didn't just convert and then all of a sudden come back and start on his missionary journeys. He was gone for 17 years getting to know God, searching the scriptures, seeing how Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament said he would be. And I think that's important for us to realize it takes time for us to get to know God and listen to him and learn the scriptures. Then we find Paul again in Acts 11 when Barnabas brings him to Antioch and they take gifts to Judea and Saul is sent on his first mission. I want to pay particular attention to Acts 13. This is where we learn that Saul is called Paul and he continues to be called Paul from here on out. Why the change? Let's look at what the names mean. Saul was his Hebrew name, and it means asked for or prayed for. It also happened to be the name of the first king of Israel. And Paul was his Roman name, which was in Greek, and it means small or little. Quite a difference, huh? Listen to what I read from a place called God Questions. First, I want you to notice, before I read what it said there, that Jesus did not change Saul's name from Saul to Paul. Some people kind of think he did in that conversion experience, encounter. But Jesus didn't change it. He continued to use his Hebrew name Saul until sometime after he began to believe in and preach Christ. During his first missionary journey, as the Apostle to the Gentiles, as he was called in Romans, he used his Roman name, Paul. That's when we start hearing that. It would make sense for Paul to use his Roman name as he traveled farther and farther into the Gentile world. It was a fitting thing to do for the man who proclaimed that he would become all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. And adopting his Roman name would allow Paul to approach the Gentiles to whom he was sent and speak to them in their own language, becoming as one of them 
and setting them at ease. It's also possible that Paul gave up the use of his Hebrew name Saul with its regal connotation and chose to use his Roman name Paul, meaning little or small, because he desired to become smaller in order to present Christ as greater. I think both of those are really neat reasons why he may have used Paul. And it makes sense to me. Missionaries commonly use the popular translation of their given name when they go into another culture. I experienced that as I was a missionary in the Spanish-speaking world and still today, although my name is not easy in any language. But all the people that I went with, if you were John, you would be called Juan. If you were Paul, you would be called Pablo. If you were Mary, they would call you Maria. So it makes sense that Paul would use the the language of the people he was going to, and that would have been Paul. So anyway, from here on out in Acts, we no longer hear him be called Saul, whether it's because he didn't want to sound like a regal king or whether he wanted to be small or just be accepted and easily understood by his Gentile environment. Paul is recognized as one given grace by God to preach to the Gentiles. And that's just what he does. Now, I can't read the rest of Acts because it would take all night. But I do want you to familiarize yourself with his story if you're not. So that's something you can look forward to doing while you have all this time off during coronavirus. Unless you're a health worker, then you probably don't have much time left at all. <laughs> all right, let's just uh, review a short summary of who Paul is and then we'll move on. We will learn more about him in chapter 3. He was born Saul of Tarsus, a Roman citizen. He was trained in the Jewish law by a Pharisee and became a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. Then he meets Jesus. And he is the only apostle to meet Jesus after the ascension. And that's where he converts to Christianity. He becomes a missionary to the Gentiles. And now he is in prison because of preaching his faith. Paul. And then it says the next line, and Timothy. Who is Timothy? Timothy was a disciple of Paul who lived in Lystra. He had Jewish faith from his mother's side. She was a believer in Christ, as was his grandmother. We learned that in 2 Timothy. But his father was Greek. Paul calls him my true son in the faith. Timothy had ministered with Paul in Macedonia and helped establish churches there, as well as in Achaia. And Timothy stuck with Paul through difficult times. And in the mind of the apostle, he was a good representative of Paul's way of life and teaching. During one difficult period, Paul sent him to work with the Corinthians, referring to him in that letter as his son whom he loved. And he was side by side with Paul in the ministry at Corinth, also in the ministry at Philippi. And now he is with Paul while he's in prison in Rome. We'll also hear a little bit more about Timothy in chapter 2 of Philippians. But for now, that's Paul and Timothy. The next line says, Servants of Christ Jesus. 
Now, what's the significance of Paul choosing to describe them this way? It's very significant, I think. The Greek word for servant here is doulos, which is defined as a slave, one who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another, his will altogether consumed in the will of the other. Don't you just love that? Paul's use of this term implies that he and Timothy are servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. And in the sense that both he and Timothy are owned by Christ and have been bound over to him to do his will. To me, it sounds like 1 Corinthians 6.20, which says, you were bought with a price. They were bought. We are bought, just like slaves in that time. The, ser- the term servant or doulos in Paul's Greco-Roman context referred to a class of people who were at the bottom of the social order. And Paul was willing to call himself that. And Paul's inclusion of Timothy beside himself in this introduction provides a model for the Philippians of true Christian humility. Because even though he was a great apostle and invested with authority directly from the Lord, he was first and foremost a servant of Jesus Christ. Just like any other Christian, including Timothy, both of them worked shoulder to shoulder for the Philippians, and Paul regarded his relationship to Timothy as equal under the Lord. So, is that Paul, how Paul always describes himself? What do you think? I looked at all the other letters he wrote, and this is the only time he describes himself that way. To the Thessalonians, he gives no description of all, at all. And to Philemon, he only calls himself a prisoner of Christ. But in all his other letters, and remember, there's 13 of them, he calls himself an apostle. So why didn't he do that this time? I think sometimes you can learn things based on what people do not write. And here, Paul did not feel the need to prove himself in any way. He didn't feel the need to defend his apostleship, to impose authority, or to assure authenticity. Maybe the difference could be because of their relationship, or maybe because of his purpose in this letter. Some people need to hear your title for a frame of reference to know who you are. Or they need to know if they don't know you very well, or they need to remember your position and what authority you have over them. But others are on a first-name basis, and you just don't need to say much. I kind of think that's what's going on here. As we move through this letter, I think you will see why he greets them in such a personal way. And so, who are these people? that Paul feels so comfortable with to call himself simply a servant alongside Timothy. The next line says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Why does he call them saints? Are they holier than most of us? One commentator said, Paul is actually fleshing out a theological shift 
between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. In the New Testament, with the coming of Christ, our status before God has been determined by Christ's place on the cross. Do you understand what that means? We are who we are because of what Christ did, not because of ourselves. Saints is the plural of hagios, which literally means consecrated or set apart ones. It's from hagiazo, which means to dedicate, to separate, set apart for God, and then to purify in the sense of make conformable in character to such a dedication. So hagios is an adjective, and it may be used to describe the condition of something as being holy, dedicated to God, sacred or pure. But what I want you to understand is that the main idea when it's used here of Christians is not describing excellence of character, but our spiritual position as set apart to God through the work of the Holy Spirit on the basis of the redemptive work of Christ. And I think I put that on there exactly because I wanted you to see how it, that was said. I think it's really well worded. In short, believers are not saints because of our conduct, but because of our relief to Christ. So when you hear the word saint, remember, it's because we are set apart because of what Christ did for us, not because of any way that we act. It's also interesting that in ancient times, hagios was used of that which was taken out of secular use and put into some kind of religious service. In scripture, it came to mean set apart from the secular world to God alone as his special people for his use or purposes. So this is what the Philippians are, and this is what we are, saints in Christ Jesus. The next phrase says, together with the overseers and the deacons. Who are they? Well, simply these would be the leaders in the local church, just like today. We may call them overseers and deacons or other words, but it's just the leaders in the church at that time. So why are they addressed separately from the rest of the believers? Why does it say all the saints together with the overseers and deacons? I think Paul wants to make it clear that he is personally addressing all the believers, not just directing correspondence to the leaders. Because if you think about it, who would normally open the mail? Who would normally read a letter sent to the church? It would be the secretary if they had one, the leaders in the church, the pastors would be the ones who read it. And Paul wanted to make sure that he specifically said to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Also, together with the overseers and the deacons. So, what do we know about Philippi and these people that are there? I have a map for you. So we can see where Philippi is. comes from the BibleJourney.org. And Philippi is an old Greek city. Looky there. 
My PowerPoint person circled it in red for you to find it. Let me just kind of go through some of the places we've talked about so far. So we start down here in Jerusalem. This is where Paul studied when he was growing up to be a Pharisee. But he came from Tarsus, which is in Cilicia, in part of the Roman world. And if you move across here, we see Lystra is where Timothy was from. You can, this is, the lines are, are um, his second missionary journey. So if you go across here, you have to go across the water and go up to Philippi. And that's where the people are that he's writing to right here. It's an old Greek city that was conquered by Philip of Macedon. Macedon because it's in the area of Macedonia and obviously Philippi from his name. He was the father of Alexander the Great. I found that interesting. And it was conquered by him in between 300 or some people say 350 BC. Then it was refounded over 200 years later as a Roman colony. So that would have been still at least 100 years before Christ. Philippi was an important gold mining center and gold coins were minted there, which is interesting because it was a busy commercial settlement on what they call the Via Ignatia in Macedonia, an important routeway leading west along the coast and eventually across the Adriatic Sea to Rome. So the reason I tell you that is so you realize that people traveled a lot. Philippi was one of the places that would, would have a lot of people coming through. And I even have a picture of this Via Ignatia at Philippi, which we're going to read about a minute in, in Acts 16. But isn't it cool how you can see the path? And if you, I don't know if you can see, there's even people walking on it kind of far up under the trees. But that's where people would have actually walked back in the day on their way to Philippi. All right, now I'm going to move on to what is their history with Paul? How did they meet? What do we know about these people from Philippi that he loves so much? Um, there's only two times in the book of Acts where we're told that Paul actually visited Philippi, but it's almost certain that he made a third visit. Many scholars think that there probably was a fourth visit, but his first visit was during his second missionary journey after the Spirit had led them there through a vision that Paul had, which we're going to read about in just a few minutes. And when they arrived at the port of Neapolis, this was the first time the gospel had arrived in Europe. Most evangelical scholars date this around A.D. 50. Uh, Neapolis was the port for Philippi, the largest city in the region, about 10 miles inland. And Paul's arrival there is recorded in Acts 16. So if you have your Bibles, please get it out. We are going to read about how Paul met the Philippians in chapter 16 of Acts. I wish I could say any questions so far. I love seeing your faces and I wish you were here, but I hope and pray and trust that the Lord is speaking to you and that you are learning. Okay, Acts 16. I'm going to start at the beginning and you're going to see a couple of things that I just mentioned. Lord, as we read your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. 
in Jesus' name. Paul came to Derby, and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. I find that interesting because Paul was against circumcising people who weren't Jews. But in this case, Timothy was willing to do it to be accepted by the people there. Let's jump down to verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, I read that there must not have been a synagogue in Philippi because normally Paul would first go to the synagogue to preach. But since there wasn't one, he went to the river where he expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Tiatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. 
by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, and he washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with this order, release, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. <laughs> but Paul said to the officers, Oh no, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Now that is the story of how Paul met the Philippians and how the Philippians met Paul. So we know not a lot of people in the church, but we know that they had the jailer and his whole household. We know that Lydia was an important person in that church and his, her whole family, and she hosted them, as well as did the jailer when he brought, him, brought them into his house that night. 
So that's a, a little summary. Now let's just look back quickly and review the time and place of Paul's writing to the Philippians. Most believe that he wrote it during his first Roman imprisonment around 60 to 62 AD. Now you're going to need to read the rest of Acts if you don't know how he ended up in prison, but you can get a little taste of it by what he said to the people who wanted to let him go privately since he was a citizen of Rome. Um, so anyway, he ended up in prison. Paul would have been about 60 years old by now, and he has known the Philippians for at least 10 years. Remember, what we read was on his second journey when he first met them, but then he probably visited them two, three, or four more times. So they have supported him throughout his journeys ever since their first acquaintance. He knows them very well. There's an obvious love between them, as you'll hear when you read the, the letter. And so that's what we're going to do. This genre of literature, um, the letters, also called the epistles, should be read in one sitting. And um, I must have been nervous because I spoke really fast. And we have plenty of time to read the whole letter. Um, I kind of want to go back and see if there's anything I missed, but maybe we'll have time to talk about it later. What I want you to do before we listen to this letter is to have a pen ready, some paper ready, so you can jot down anything that God might speak to you while we listen to the Word of God. Um, there's so many different things that he's going to bring up, and one of the things that I want us to work on, all of us to work on, during these special seven weeks that we'll have together is memorizing the Word. Um, so if there's any piece that stands out to you and you think, yeah, that would be one that I'd like to memorize, just make a, a little note of it. Um, also at the end, I'd like you to share what impacted you the most, maybe what um, expectations you have for this journey. So just be re ready to write those things down. Um, and then uh, at the end, remember that if you would like to be in a group and, and talk about some of the things, whether the discussion question I talked about earlier about your purpose, just as God formed and gave Paul exactly the right background and gifts that he needed for his purpose, that you also have a purpose. I want you to be able to talk about that with your friends in the group. Um, and if you want to follow along, I'm actually going to be using the old NIV version of Philippians. But if you want to just listen, that's fine too. So, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given me by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. 
for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but made himself nothing taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do nothing, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. That I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes such a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy has proved himself, you know, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon.
but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, who you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to save me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, for he almost died. For the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. And as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness <laughs> that is from God and comes by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And 
all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and say now again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, Help these women who have contended at my side for the cause of Christ, along with Clement and my other fellow workers, whose names are in the Book of Life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned from me, or received from me, or heard from me, or seen in me, put it into practice, and the peace of God will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you have la at last renewed your concern for me. Oh, indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment, and even more, I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glories in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints that are with you, the brothers here. Send their greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That is the letter to the Philippians. And I hope that it encouraged you, that it spoke to you as much as it does to me every time I look at it. Now, um, our goal is if you would just take a few minutes and write down, journal, whatever God has spoken to you tonight. And um, I hope to see you again next week. Before we leave, let me remind you that um, if you don't have people with you, maybe family members that you're at home with watching this and you'd like to be part of a Zoom online group where you can talk things over, where you can share what you've learned and pray for each other. Then you can email Elizabeth and she'll make sure you become a part of that. But before I go, let me at least pray for you. Um, and I hope that uh, you get as much out of this as I am. Lord, thank you so much for using such imperfection. Thank you for using someone like Paul. Thank you for using someone like me. Thank you for these women who each have a God-given purpose that I pray we discover over these next very special seven weeks leading up to Pentecost. I keep thinking about your holy words. And I think I'm just going to pray these words to a song. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world.
they resound with God's own heart. Let the ancient words impart. Ancient words ever true. They're changing me and they're changing you. We have come with open hearts, Lord. Let your ancient words impart. Be blessed, my sisters, and I will look forward to seeing you again next Wednesday.